Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36 is the text for Pastor John's sermon this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the pew pocket in front of you. And the text is found on page 948. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy Holy One see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. I want to begin this morning by asking three questions that you can answer for yourself in the quiet of your own heart. The first is, do you want to be happy? The second is, do you want your happiness to be partial or do you want it to be full? And the third is, do you want your happiness to stop or do you want it to last as long as you last? Now, the reason I think those three questions are worthy of Easter Sunday morning is not just because all of you have a lot at stake in those questions and care about those questions, but also because those questions are the issues at rock bottom in biblical religion. Where, wherever the Bible has had its profoundest and deepest effect in the lives and hearts of people, it has had that effect not by producing uh, the constraint of a new compulsion or duty, but by the power of a new pleasure. It has produced constraints and duties upon people, produced a great deal of heartache in the lives of legalistic minds, 
But that is not where the Bible has taken root and been understood. Not where the Bible has had its effect intended by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to illustrate from a story of a missionary that I just read this week what I mean by the Bible's taking its root and producing a new power of pleasure when it has its fullest effect. The missionary's name is John G. Patton. He was born May 24, 1824 in Dumfries County, Scotland. His father was a weaver. And so in their home they had the big uh, stocking frames in the back part of the house. And he was a very godly man, this father. And there was a little closet right in the middle of the house where all the children knew, 11 children knew that their father prayed two, three times a day. They could hear him sometimes praying for them. And it made a tremendous impact on John G. Patton. His biographer says that the church going, the Bible stories, the shorter catechism were not tasks. They were pleasures in the Patton home. The boy had to quit school when he was 12 years old to help feed all these 11 children. He had a conversion experience when he was 17, and, and the faith and the love that his parents had for Christ came home to his own heart, and it became his own faith. And he felt a call to the ministry, and for 10 years, he was a missionary, a city missionary to the urchins of Glasgow in Scotland. Then, when he was 32 years old, he accepted the call to be a missionary. Before he left in 1858, he married a young woman named Mary Ann Robeson. And then on April 16, a month after they'd been married, they sailed together as a newly married couple to go to the cannibal island of Tana in the New Hebrides. They arrived, and within a year, they had a little home built and a son was born to them. But on March 3rd, one year after they'd been married, 1859, Mary died of the fever. Three weeks later, the infant son died, and John Patton buried them alone on Tana. He said in his autobiography, But for Jesus, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. One of the gifts that Jesus gave to John G. Patton to give him strength to carry on, and he did carry on for 50 years in the New Hebrides, was the words of his wife when she was dying. And right here is what I mean when I say the Bible, wherever it has taken root in hearts that understand it, produces not a new constraint of duty, but a new power of pleasure. She did not murmur against God. She did not resent her husband's having brought her halfway around the world to die as a newlywed. Rather, she spoke these incredible words, and you read them again and again in the missionary literature of the saints. She said, I do not regret leaving home and friends if I had to do it over, I would do it with more pleasure, yes, with all my heart. Among those people who have understood this book, among those people into whose heart this book has sunk 
not just held in the head with ideas, but sunk like a shaft into where they live. Never has this book ever had the effect of diverting them from the quest for pleasure. Never. Rather, it has had the effect of making them really take that quest seriously. It has made them ask, do I really want to be happy? Do I want full happiness or partial happiness? Do I want happiness that will peter out in 70 years or happiness that will last as long as I last? The Bible has a way when it is understood and felt of making you desperate about this quest for happiness. It has a way of taking us away from playing games with our pursuit of pleasures and making us serious about the longings of our heart and whether they will be fulfilled or not. Never once did Jesus Christ condemn the pursuit of pleasure. But on the contrary, often he rebuked us for taking it so lightly. Now, what's all that got to do with Easter Sunday? Well, back in January, when I conceived this message at Shalom House, I saw a new connection that I'd never seen before between the pursuit of happiness, both mine and Christ's, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I want to do my best to trace that connection with you from Acts chapter 2 this morning. It's some rough going, but let me try. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We'll find out what happened between the resurrection and the ascension here. It says, Jesus presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs appearing to his apostles during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, the risen Lord Jesus Christ was trying to prove to his apostles that he had really risen, that he was alive, that this body, this flesh with which he could eat fish was real. It was new and it was indestructible. He was trying to show them that his death for sinners was validated and that their sins were really covered. Like Paul says, if Christ is not risen, well, we're still in our sins. And so he was trying to make plain to them that the death he had died for sinners was validated by his resurrection. And he tried for 40 days to show them that his teachings were true because he was the risen son, an infallible teacher in the church. And he tried to show them that the fellowship that they could now have with them would never die. It would last forever and ever. And finally, he was trying to show them that his cause would triumph. The cause of Christ will not be defeated. It may look like a mustard seed in some places. It may look like a football in other places. But it is going to be a mountain that fills the earth with the glory of God someday. It cannot be defeated. And then he ascended here in Acts 1, and he sat down at the right hand of God on high, and he rules, Paul says, until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And then he will come, Jesus said, in power and great glory. 
He will gather his elect from the four winds. He will raise those who have died in Christ Jesus and they will reign forever and ever. I tell you, we have a hope that is simply incomparable. And oh, that God would give us a heart and emotional energy to feel it in a way that's appropriate to the reality. The book of Acts, however, goes on after the ascension and tells us what happened for ten days. For ten days, it says, the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, and the eleven apostles, Judas having committed suicide, met and prayed in Jerusalem. Maybe the 120 prayed as well. We're not sure. There were 120 when they voted uh, or drew straws for Matthias. But at least there was his mother, his brothers, and the apostles, it says, and they prayed for ten days, waiting upon the, the Holy Spirit to fall on that little band of disciples. Now, how do you pray for ten days? I mean, we've prayed all night here at Bethlehem, and that, that wears you out. How do you pray for ten days? Well, at least this much you do. You spend a lot of time in the Word which kindles prayer. And you know where I think Peter and the apostles spent their time? I think they spent those ten days just combing the Old Testament, looking for prophecies and predictions and, and foreshadowings and hints of what these things meant in these days surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, these were the greatest days of history. So they searched and they meditated and you know one of the psalms that I think, I'm almost sure, Peter meditated upon. It goes like this. Preserve me, O God, for in thee I take refuge. I say to the Lord, thou art my Lord, I have no good apart from thee. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows, their libations of blood. I will not pour out nor take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Thou holdest my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart rejoices and my soul is glad. My body also dwells secure. For thou dost not give thy Holy One up to see destruction nor abandon me to Hades. Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I know Peter meditated on that Psalm 16. And you know how I know? Because of what he did with it in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit finally fell, the apostles were full of the word of God. And I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2. It's quoted in verses 25 to 28. And I want to try to get us into the mind of Peter as he handles Psalm 16. First of all, let me give you a couple of general preparatory 
insights into the way Peter read the Psalms, as I discern it from the way he used the Psalm. First of all, I think Peter was totally confident that God had made a promise to David, the writer of many of the Psalms. And that promise from 2 Samuel 7 said, There will come a seed from your own body, he will be your son, and he will sit on your throne and reign forever and ever. And so David was aware of this stupendous reality when he wrote Psalms. Namely, that in his body, as it were, there was the seed of the Messiah. One who would sit on his throne and reign, and his reign would never end. And here's what that meant for the writing of his Psalms. Often, being a prophet and full of the Holy Spirit, he would be writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about his own experience. And all of a sudden, the Spirit would lift David up, as it were, out of himself And the words that he wrote were no longer words about the first King David. They were words spoken by the second David. His words went way beyond anything that he himself would experience. I read Psalm 22, for example, this week again, just to refresh my memory of that great psalm. So full of predictions, they will pierce my hands and my feet. They will cast uh, lots for my garments. David was up in the Holy Spirit as he wrote that psalm. No longer speaking merely of the first David. He was speaking for the second David. Inspired of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is aware that this happens. He's meditating on Psalm 16. And I want to carry you with him through his meditation. And follow me, will will you, from verse 25 on in Acts chapter 2. Peter reads the psalm. David says, the Lord is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And Peter stops and he asks himself this question. In what sense would David not be shaken? And he reads on to find the answer. Verse 26. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. And Peter stops again and he ponders. And he says, yes, that's the answer. That's the sense in which he will not be shaken. His heart and his flesh dwell in hope. He is secure in God. God will protect him. But then he asks further, being a sharp reader, he says, no, wait a minute. How will David be protected? How safe really is David when he says this about his heart and his flesh? Will he not die? Did he not die, Peter asks himself. And then he reads on. And David continues, for thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy godly one See, corruption. And Peter stares a long time at this verse and lets it sink in. And he ponders this question. Will David's flesh really never see corruption? Will David really never see the decaying effects of the pit, as it's called in the Hebrew, 
back in Psalm 16. Does he really expect that that the protection and the safety and the hope that he has for his own flesh will go so far that he will not decay? And either suddenly or perhaps gradually, it dawns on Peter, this is not David anymore. David has been lifted now up, speaking no longer for himself, but as Peter says later on, he has a prophet now. And by the Holy Spirit, he is speaking for the second David, the son of David. And we see in verse 31 how Peter makes the connection very explicit. He says, David foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Okay, you with me now? You see how David moves, speaking of himself, and then, as it were, spreads the wings by the Holy Spirit and begins to soar so that his perspective is much farther than the end of his own life. And he says things that were not fulfilled in his own self, but in his son. Now, right here in Peter's exposition of this psalm emerges the connection that I saw back in January between my pursuit of pleasure and your pursuit of pleasure and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The psalm ends with words that are quoted in verse 28. Now we know who's speaking, don't we? This is the Messiah, not the first David merely. This is the son of David, our Lord, Jesus Christ, risen. And he says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. And the psalm ends, though it's not quoted by Peter, In thy hand, thy right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In other words... What we learn from this text is that God the Father has a purpose for his son beyond the grave. And that purpose is gladness and not partial gladness. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Now, what's the essence of this happiness and gladness? Well, we get it from the last phrase of verse 28. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Now I'm going to give you a little test to see if you've been with me for 13 weeks. This is the end of the series this morning. And we have now, with that statement, come full circle to where we began. Do you remember where we began? God has pleasure In his son. And we lifted up this glorious vision of God. God the father. Loving the son with infinite energy. God the son. The very reflection of the glory of the father. Loving the father with infinite energy. And the Holy Spirit. The love of God. Surging with infinite power. Between the father and the son. 
And now, on Good Friday, we have seen that the Son laid it aside, this glory, this matchless joy of reflecting the glory of the Father. And He came and He suffered. And now, He has a promise from the Father here. I am going to fill you with that same gladness that you had before the worlds were made with me. And what was the essence of the presence of the Father for Jesus? It was glory. Receiving again the glory that he had laid aside when he came. And the reason I know this is because it's exactly what Jesus said when he prayed like this the night before he died. Father, glorify me. Glorify me with your presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world was made. Jesus had laid it down for you and me. He had laid it down. And now he said, Father, I want it back. I'm coming home and I expect a coronation That will be like no coronation in all the world. And so Jesus was going as a glad God back to the consummation that he had given up when he came. Now let me ask this question in closing. What does the gladness of the risen God have to do with your quest for gladness? What does the gladness of the risen God have to do with your desire this morning to be glad. There's not a person in this room who does not want to be glad. And so right here, there is something so relevant for everybody's heart. Well, it has a lot to do with your desire to be glad. Let me get at it like this. Jesus did not hit upon his gladness in heaven by accident. Not at all. Hebrews 12, 2. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And what is at the right hand of God according to Psalm 1611? Pleasures forevermore. For the joy that was set before him in the seat at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore, he endured the cross. Everything he experienced, he experienced by the power of the hope of joy. Jesus did not hit upon his joy by accident. He pursued it with all his might. Now, do you know what implication that has for you this morning? That means... That he has sanctioned your pursuit of happiness. That means that this morning if you're here with a heart that is just bursting, longing, dying for some happiness. You will not hear Jesus say, come on. Can't you produce some more noble motives than that on Easter Sunday? He will not say it. It isn't true. You will never hear Jesus say, Deny yourself that desire for happiness. You will never hear Jesus say a passion for pleasure is a bad thing. 
He has sanctioned it with his own life. He pursued the pleasures at the right hand of his father with all his might, even unto death. One more thing has to do with us. Comes from this reflection. If all Jesus wants is the glory and the gladness in the presence of his father, why did he come in the first place? I mean, he had it. He had glory. He had gladness. Why did he lay it aside and come? If now he's saying, Father, give it back. Give it back. Well, you know the answer to that question. It's written all over the New Testament. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He came to save sinners like you and me. That's why he came. And now here's another test. Will you ask this question? Betraying that you haven't been tracking with me for 13 weeks. Will you say, wait a minute. You said he wants his own glory. He wants his own joy. He wants a coronation day in the presence of his father. But now you're telling us he wants our joy. He wants our glory. Well, make up your mind. Which is it? Is he loving or is he hedonistic? Now, that question I regard as the most important question in the Bible. Is God for us or for himself? Is Jesus for me in his resurrection or for Jesus? And I'm going to give you one more answer. And this is it. We're done with the series today. It comes from the words of Jesus himself. This is Jesus' answer to the question, is he for us or for himself, in the prayer that he prayed on the last night of his life. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given to me, may be with me where I am to behold My glory, which you have given to me before the foundation of the world. You see it? Is he for himself? Yes, he wants glory, abounding, unspeakable glory in the presence of the Father. Is he for you? Yes, because he wants you there, seeing it, swept up into it, changed by it. All guilt, all pain, all sin, gone forever. He is for himself so that he can be for you. Father, I want them with me in my glory. And so I close by simply pointing out the wonder of Easter is a double wonder. Here's one of the wonders. Don't you wonder at what it must have been like When the suffering, bloody son came home to be received into his father's arms. I close my eyes and I try to imagine, what is it like when Creator embraces Creator and says, Well done, son. Welcome home. Surely all the saints and all the angels of heaven go on their face in silence. Before that embrace and that reunion 
What a wonder Easter must have been when the father welcomed home his bloody son. And secondly, isn't it a wonder to hear that son say as his father releases that embrace, Father, I want him with me. I want you to get him home. I want them with me in my glory. I want my glory to reflect off of every face. I want my gladness in your glory to become a mountain spring, Father, and spill over and fill their cups with gladness. I want my joy to be in them and their joy to be full. When Jesus broke the lock off of the prison of gloom and death this morning, he did two things. He sanctioned your quest for happiness. And he opened the gates of heaven so that sinners could go in and find an inexhaustible fountain of satisfaction and glory and grace. And now I close with an invitation to you. And it's not me inviting you now. It's Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus. And any of you who doesn't have Jesus, you know it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, but Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who belong to him. A couple of verses down. Do you belong to Jesus this morning? Here's the invitation with which I close. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die, but shall be caught up into the gladness of the risen God forever and ever. Come. Amen.